0: Welcome back to Season 2 of that So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. Today we have a real treat for you. This is our interview with Jonathan Lunine, hopefully just our first interview. Aside from the one we actually recorded this just after we talked to him at the end of May, for his preview episode for the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference. So this is our interview about him, his spiritual journey. Actually, that ended up taking more than half the podcast and was just fascinating. And then, of course, we got the chance to talk to him about a little about his science. He's a planetary scientist. He's a very decorated planetary scientist, uh, has done a lot of interesting work on planets of all kinds, planets, moons, uh, other solar system bodies, exoplanets, and uh, has Talked uh, has studied the question of life on other planets, the possibility for it, how we would find it. Uh, there was just too much to cram into one podcast interview. We really hope to talk to him again soon. In the meantime, this is one of the most enjoyable interviews we've ever done. We hope you enjoy it just as much as we did. Well, Welcome back to Vets Second Millennium. This is our uh, interview with Dr. Jonathan Lunine of Cornell University, planetary scientist and member of the Board of the Society of Catholic Scientists. So as we mentioned, when we interviewed him for the uh, run-up to the Society of Catholic Scientists conference back in, at the end of May, (coughs) mentioned that he had won, among other things, a URI prize. Uh, He's also had an interesting, uh, distinctive journey, spiritual journey. And so we'd like to talk to him about a little bit about both his own, uh, his own path through faith and science and uh, his intellectual career, as well as some of the details of his work as a planetary scientist. So to start off with, um, what would you what would you like to share regarding your own intellectual and spiritual journey?
1: Well, um, I, I'm willing to share almost all of it. It just would take too much time to right. uh, to share it all. So, with, why don't I start by saying a little bit about how I became a planetary scientist and an astronomer, and then talk a bit about my um, religious journey as well. Um, okay. So I. Um, re- remember being interested in astronomy from a, a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in New York City, but uh, at least for the first six years of my life, we were within walking distance of the Hayden Planetarium, which is mm-hmm. a very famous <laughs> planetarium of the Museum of Natural History in New York. And that th- those shows really fired my imagination, as well as books that I was given as gifts and so forth and uh, of course I was growing up during the uh, era when the space age had begun I was born in 1959 and the Apollo program was underway and um, my parents were were uh, I would say supportive of it and so you know those were all in place um, but I you know I you never know as a kid how to become a scientist and so forth and when I was in uh, uh what we then call junior high school—I guess we call it middle school now. Yeah. Um, I came—I came upon a book called uh, *The Cosmic Connection: An Extraterrestrial Perspective*, written by a Cornell astronomer named Carl Sagan. Now, this <laughs> yeah. year years yeah. before *Cosmos*, so mm-hmm. you know right. it wasn't all that well known. But I—I I, mm-hmm. I read a review of the book in an astronomy magazine. I bought the book, and it just—you um, know—it—it it, it was such an extraordinary vision of what humankind. Uh, could do in exploring the cosmos, that I was really uh, just transported away by it. And apparently, was enough of an uh, irritation in the apartment, reading passages out loud and so forth, that my mother uh, said that I ought to actually write to Professor Sagan and tell him how excited I was. And I was skeptical that he would write back, but she insisted, and I did. And he did write back. He wrote back a two-page letter about how to become an astronomer. Uh, he included some uh, reprints of papers uh, from the Mariner 9 Mars mission that was going on at the time. It was really, um, mm-hmm. it was quite thrilling. And I've retained that letter and the correspondence after that. Mm-hmm. Um, he really explained how to become an astronomer and, and he connected me in a kind of a virtual way with the community. Remember, no such thing as the internet in those days. This is right. the early, ni- early 1970s. Yeah. And so, um, so I went on to college and uh majored in astronomy and then um, it wasn't clear what kind of astronomy i was going to do but i knew i would go to graduate school um, my junior year uh, i as a subscriber to sky and telescope i picked up my copy from the uh, campus mail room and headed over to my astronomy class and opened up the, the wrapper and there on the front cover was a picture of jupiter that had been taken by the voyager 1 spacecraft Uh, on its approach to Jupiter. This is 1979, the spring of 79 now. Um, And that picture amazed me so much that I realized that within the field of astronomy, I wanted to do planetary science, to explore the planets, to be involved with spacecraft like Voyager and Mm-hmm. Um, and that determined, you know, where I went to grad school and what programs I, I, uh, I went into and that's how I became a planetary scientist. And I've been blessed with the ability not only to work on Voyager actually years later when it flew by Neptune in 1989, mm-hmm. uh, but also, uh, have worked on Cassini and, uh, worked on the Juno mission and the Europa Clipper, uh, which is coming up and James Webb Space Telescope and, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, even some missions I've thought of myself. So I feel very, very um, uh, privileged and blessed to be able to do all of that. Now um, at the same time uh, I grew up uh, in a, uh, so we're rewinding the tape now back to my childhood again. Yeah. I I grew up in a Jewish household. Um, It was a typical American Jewish household. I would say Uh, we had Hanukkah candles and a Christmas tree, both Um, the, the, uh my mother's side of the family was very uh reform, uh didn't really practice their reform Jews nominally, but 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 mm-hmm. had not practiced. Her, her father, who died before I was born, believed that religion was the root of all of uh, humanity's problems. Mm-hmm. My father's side, on the other hand, they were conservative Jews, so they were a bit more more practicing. Um, my mother was a rockhead at Radio City Music Hall, so oh, uh, oh wow. Uh, yeah, she <laughs> she retired when I was born, but went back when I was uh, a teenager after my father died. So I I got to see the christmas show at the music hall quite a bit that's not why i became a catholic
0: however so, um, that would be an interesting interesting
1: formation yeah that's right yeah, yeah. But, but nonetheless i grew up in a i would say a very diverse household um but i you know i believed in god uh it was something that was taken uh for granted in in our family my mother did not share her father's views
2: mm-hmm.
1: um And so briefly, we belonged to a synagogue, but then my my father, uh, who unfortunately was an alcoholic, um, lost his business, and our family finances uh, really went down the tubes, as did our family life. And so um, they could no longer afford the membership fees at the synagogue uh, around Mm -hmm. when I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, Now, the family Bible... Uh, was uh, in our in our household was actually a King James Bible and mm-hmm. I uh, found a lot of solace in uh, reading it uh, I would uh, because junior high school I had a lot of time on my hands
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I, I actually you know read bits and pieces of, uh, of both the um, Old and New Testaments uh, I found it all somewhat puzzling uh, it was yeah. you know, some, not something a 13 year old grasps entirely no but around that time, uh, I also had an experience um, where, uh, it, it, in in a dream, but an extremely vivid dream, I, I met uh, Christ, and uh, he was a source of great comfort and um, uh, light during a time when our family life was extremely dark and mm. you know, really, I would say, very oppressive. And that that impressed me. That dream impressed me, but. I didn't really do anything about it, uh, I, um, I sort of put it aside, and uh, I, I didn't practice, I went to college, went to grad school, I, I went to synagogue occasionally, um, uh, but maybe once or twice a year with friends, really didn't do anything else. Uh, but the one, one scientist who impressed me during that time was an astronomer who uh, taught a class in introductory astronomy, was a practicing Jew, and mm-hmm. for the last lecture, he uh, compared the uh, uh structure of the origin story in Genesis with the big bang model of the cosmos mm-hmm. uh, now today you could not get away with that you'd be called up in front of the dean or the yeah. provost or something but it mm-hmm. really impressed me because it showed me someone who was um both a scientist and a, a man of faith
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: so anyway, I got my Ph.D. in the mid-1980s, moved to Tucson, where I taught for 26 years. I met my wife there, and um, I went to a wedding at a very uh, liberal Methodist church, the St. Francis and the Foothills United Methodist Church of Tucson. And it turned out that my wife-to-be was becoming a member there. Um, mm-hmm. they, it, it, it was so liberal that, you know, whereas Methodists do actually essentially say Uh, the Apostles' Creed when they became members. That was not the case at that church. And so I could be a member without having to commit to anything, which, in fact, was my situation uh, for many years. But the pastor there, David Wilkinson, who's now retired, was a brilliant uh, homilist uh, or sermonist, whichever you take your pick. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was steeped, uh, even though he was a Methodist minister, he was steeped in the church fathers, uh, in modern Mm -hmm. writers like Teilhard de Chardin and others, And his uh, sermons every Sunday were uh, brilliant and uh, extremely informative and educational. And it was a kind of an inadvertent formation for me because over many years we we would go together. I stopped going to synagogue. And at the same time, um, I was coming to know the Vatican Astronomy Group, which had Uh its Western headquarters at the uh, University of Arizona, where I taught. Uh Um, They had a telescope there. And as I came to know them better, and I, in fact, uh, did a summer school with them uh, in Rome in 2005, Mm -hmm. I came to realize that here were men who uh, were scientists, working scientists, very good scientists, and also not only men of faith, but uh, for whom uh, their faith was part of their profession. They were religious. They were priests and brothers, and that made, again, a huge impression on me, so much so that when we came back from the Rome sabbatical in 2006 um, sitting in our living room in Arizona, Southern Arizona, um, I I had a certain moment of clarity that I had been dancing around the issue of what I truly believed uh, for um, probably 25 to 30 years. And that it was time to actually um, admit to God and uh, to myself that, um, I knew that uh, Jesus Christ uh, is the son of God and mm-hmm. uh, that God is a Trinity and uh, that uh, God sent his son to, uh, uh, to the world uh, to, to save all of us from our sins. So that was a kind of a big moment, but it was a personal yes. client moment. And um, I called up my good friend, our son's pediatrician, uh, Bill Madden, who is a, a Catholic. And I said, do you think, Bill, I would I'm crazy. If I, if I'm going to tell you that I, I, I think I I want to be a Catholic and I want to convert. And he said, no, not crazy at all. I know just the person and he introduced me to the associate pastor at the Newman center on campus. I started in in the RCIA program and I was baptized and confirmed in the church, uh, on Holy Saturday of 20 of 2007, Mm -hmm. 2007, just 12 years ago. Um, And that was a long journey. It was um, a journey that, um, you know, where God broke in early on, but for which uh, I I needed time to, I think, learn and um, to see, by example, the kinds of people who um, were not only scientists, but also lived a life of faith. I think I, I had been skeptical that that was possible. Uh, but I saw, particularly thanks to the Jesuit astronomers uh, and also Mm -hmm. to my astronomy professor, that that was eminently possible. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm, That's a great story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think both Jewish and Christian uh, influences along the way.
1: Well, there were. And, you know, one of the things that, um, I mean, a lot of people ask, well, why Catholic? And there were a few reasons. One was the really... um, long and continuous intellectual tradition of the church. Uh, The second was that I found, particularly in my Jewish worship, that um, the sensory experiences were important to me, uh, Mm -hmm. and the same is true in Catholicism. And also, you know, Catholicism, I think of uh, all of Christianity, uh, any denomination, is really the closest to Judaism. Uh, We read from uh, the Hebrew scriptures every week, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the um, aspects of the mass derive ultimately from uh, Jewish practices of a couple of thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that continuity was was important to me. And um, it was a very interesting second journey to tell various members of my family, what i wanted to do of course i told my wife and son immediately but over the years uh uh, you know others in the family and friends and uh uh, that's a whole other story that we don't have time for but it's been a great coming coming out party
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly (sighs) yeah and and we are unsadly kind of a little pressed for time here i'd love to talk you know so i have an aspect of your your intellectual history as a planetary scientist so so you came to it from the direction of astronomy And um, and of course I come to, you know, I've done a little work on Mars, you know, so, uh, but I've come to it from the direction of of a geologist and your, you know, as, as chance has it, your life kind of envelops the period where planetary science, so to speak, could come into, come into being as it, as it is today, where the planets went from being objects. You simply looked at your telescope and potentially your spectroscope attached to your telescope to being bodies that we can map in detail and even have samples of.
1: Yes. Well, you said it exactly right. And um, my background, my astronomy education uh, as an undergraduate was complemented by what was really a geological and geophysical education as a graduate student, because I ended up going to Caltech in the division of geological and planetary science. And I think that, you know, those two um, kinds of education are different from each other. And they've given me a perspective that um, is just as you've described, that the planets, while historically places that you would look at through telescopes uh, are also real objects that you can uh, land on and sample and uh, uh, rove around on for example like mm-hmm. Mars and that's one of the great fascinations of this field
0: yeah and occasionally pieces of those bodies even come to visit us when we're really really fortunate yes indeed so that's that's its own fascinating story and of course we had to we had to go to Mars in order to confirm that these rocks that we had on earth actually came from there. That's its, um, yeah, right. it's a, the it's own.
1: It is, you know, the SNC meteorites, uh, we, we know they're from Mars because mm-hmm. uh, some of them have trapped gases that are identical to the atmosphere of Mars. But as you said, we had to go there to find that out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so as I understand it, your, your specialty really focuses more on the, well, I suppose you could say the non-rocky bodies. So the gas giants and the, and the icy satellites.
1: It, in a sense, that's true. Yes, although uh, particularly for the icy satellites, for Titan, uh, which I've studied a great deal over the years, and also for some of the others, uh, there's a lot of geology in that ice. Yeah. Uh, the materials yeah. behave differently from rock, but uh, there's both ice and rock present, and so uh, one has to worry, uh, in my particular case, about the geophysics of these things, and so. Um, I don't have a rock hammer that I can bring with me to the surface of Titan and hammer on that's, things, but uh, we've at least landed <laughs> right. But we've at least landed there with the Huygens probe on Cassini and sampled the atmosphere, and uh, it's 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 a real place.
0: Yeah, yeah, Is it, that, it has both of those aspects. Sorry, Bill. No, no, go ahead. That, oh, I, Yeah. yeah. What, what, were, what were you about to ask? Well, uh, uh, no, I, I I um I'm just uh, uh eager to uh to, to uh have a bonus episode on the uh, on the experience of finding role models uh, on uh, uh, the uh, c- c- compatibility of science and uh, and religion uh, but uh, I, I'm eager to hear you talk about the, uh, the, the geology yeah that science. is the thing we, we there's there's definitely a rich vein that we seem to have struck here if I'm permitted the geologic metaphor um, <laughs> yeah but hopefully we'll be able to come back to you again
1: well, I'd love to yeah. talk about some of these role models and I've, I've been uh, privileged to be able to talk a lot about Georges Lemaitre, the Belgian priest and astronomer who was the father of the Big Bang. But as far as um, you know, the, the exploration of the solar system goes, uh, during the time that I've been active in the field, we've gone from seeing these objects as somewhat difficult to explore and somewhat enigmatic to bodies that have their own history, Mars was habitable in the first 20% of its history, uh, mm-hmm. there are several objects in the outer solar system that have environments under their surfaces that may support life uh, we've really I think through planetary exploration turned our cosmic backyard into uh, a place that has an enormous variety of uh, geology of uh, of even potentially biology uh, mm-hmm. we don't know that yet but um, we need to go back out and look at some of these places to uh, to see if life is present there
0: yeah. Yeah, and how that yeah, what what that would then turn around and tell us about life on Earth is also its own yeah, there's 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 just so much that we can learn from from the planets. And then and then there's the whole fact that I am still, you know, just, just a sort of a, a parting shot for me myself. The the fact that we actually had evidence for exoplanets that we can actually point to stars now and say, Oh yeah, that star has planets. I'm still geeking out about that. I don't know about anybody else.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, You know, the, the fact that there are more, more planets in our galaxy than there are stars in our galaxy, if you extrapolate the statistics, is yeah. telling us that uh, planet formation is not only a common part of star formation, but that there may be innumerable habitable worlds out there. Now, are they inhabited? Well, that's the question for the next generation, perhaps. But I yeah. think uh, almost all astronomers were surprised at just how abundant planets really are beyond our solar system.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. 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 That was, it wasn't a question. You know, there's, it's, it's a capital danger to extrapolate from one data point. We have one, one planet, one, one star system with one star, and it happens to have nine planets. But until you start looking at others, it's a little, a little difficult to extrapolate. Uh,
1: yes. I remember back in the eighties when uh, these techniques for looking for planets were failing and astronomers were we're saying, well, maybe planets are really rare, and that turned out not to be correct at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And we'll be we'll be working very hard on refining the statistics in terms of, you know, the techniques that we have now can only find planets in certain certain circumstances, to my understanding. As we broaden those out, we'll learn more as well.
1: Right. There are a couple of missions coming up, including one called WFIRST that will use a technique called microlensing that will really fill in the statistics for. Uh, planets that are orbiting uh, at distances that correspond roughly to Mars on out to Jupiter and Saturn in our system, extrapolating that to innumerable uh, stars uh, elsewhere in the galaxy. And so that is a big gap right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, I think we're going to have to cut it there for today. Um, we are really, really grateful that you made the time. It's been a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, well- Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, and I uh, certainly uh, would be happy to come back and talk sometime about uh, the science as well as uh, talking about uh, scientists who really exemplify the the harmony between science and faith.
0: Yeah, we will definitely look forward to that. Yes, looking forward to the people that we'll meet uh, at the conference uh, who who exemplify that. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Until next time. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can email a link to this episode at thatsosecondmillennium.net, share the post for this episode from our Facebook page, or you can use your podcast app's built-in sharing feature.